listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jeremy Lucero, and this is the Sunday, December 27th, 2020 edition of Labor Express. So you can call this our holiday episode, given that it's airing days after Christmas and days before the New Year's holiday. So I've taken a bit of a different tack with tonight's episode. Instead of being focused on current labor battles and what's going on right now with the working class, especially in Chicago, but also in other parts of the nation and the world, let's take a little holiday break from all that and in the spirit of New Year's, do a little look backwards. A little labor history and a bit of lighter fare than my usual programs. Once again on this program, I'm going to harness the exciting resources now available to Labor Express as a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you're looking for labor history on podcasts, Look no further than our friends at Labor History Today, one of our fellow network members. Indeed, one of the host producers, Chris Garlock, is really the heart of the network and the one that keeps it all together. You'll hear his voice in both pieces that we're airing tonight. So first up, let's talk about board games. I know it's a bit late for this piece, as hopefully all your holiday shopping is done and the gifts already delivered, but perhaps the games in this piece are ones that you purchased this holiday season. I'm talking primarily about the age-old classic Monopoly. I think I might be the only person I know that has only played it once or twice in my life. For most others, it was a game they played often as children. In this audio excerpt from a recent Labor History Today podcast, Patrick Dixon interviews Keith Plowcheck, professor of professional practice at the Annenberg School of Communications and Journalism at the University of Southern California. They talk about the history and politics of the game what lessons the game was originally meant to teach, and what it teaches to children today. Plowcheck also briefly discusses another board game, Class Struggle, created by the preeminent Marxist sociologist Bertolt Ullmann, a game I do own and have played from time to time. Later in this episode, we'll mark the 65th birthday of the AFL-CIO with a discussion with labor historian Joe McCartan about the historic merger of the AFL-CIO for better or worse in 1955. But back to Monopoly and what's going on with this game. Let's hear the thoughts of Patrick Dixon and Keith Plowcheck. During the past nine months, as hundreds of millions of us around the world have been locked down and shut in at home, there's been increased demand for a range of different consumer products. Obvious items like toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and wet wipes, and more specialized items like fitness equipment, bakeware, sewing machines. Then there's board games. When Hasbro, the makers of Monopoly, recently posted bumper third quarter sales figures, LHT's Patrick Dixon started to wonder about the political and historical implications of this new wave of pandemic-induced popularity for what many see as the most capitalist of all games. On today's show, Patrick discusses Monopoly and class struggle, a once popular Marxist alternative board game, I actually played it as a kid, with Keith Plochek, professor of professional practice at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. Welcome to Labor History Today. Thanks for joining me, Keith. It's great to be here. Just recently, Hasbro introduced their third quarter earnings report, and this really quite interested me. It showed a 21% rise in revenue to 543 million in sales of board games. And of course, Monopoly is one of the 
most popular products Hasbro produces. Anyway, this increase in the popularity of board games reminded me of a story you wrote several years ago about Monopoly and a political science professor called Bertel Ullman. Can you tell me a bit about what you discovered? Well, yeah, I, I, the funny thing is I found this game called Class Struggle. I was in a, a hostel in Bogota, um, which sounds far-fetched or pretentious, but I just was sitting there and I saw a game, a board game, and their stack of board games, and it had Karl Marx arm wrestling Rockefeller. And I thought, what is this? Is this some sort of a one-off joke? But then I, I took a lot of photos of it. And then I did a lot of research and it turns out that it was a fairly popular game. It was invented in 1978 by an NYU professor named Bertel Ullman. It ended up selling 200, about 230,000 copies worldwide, translated into five languages total. And he ultimately wrote a, a biography called Class Struggle is the name of the game, True Confessions of a Marxist Businessman, because it was a Marxist board game that he proceeded to want to create and become popular. But to do that, he had to become a small businessman himself. So he had to go and work within the system to, in theory, subvert the system. And as a result of reading about it, I learned that he ultimately, that's how I learned about the origins of Monopoly, which I didn't know at the time. I grew up playing Monopoly. But turns out it started out almost with the opposite message. It was invented in 1904 by a woman named Lizzie McGee, Maggie. And she was basically a follower of Henry George and George's, you know, basically looking at property rights and property, just basically very much against private property and the ways we would think about it. And the whole point of, it was very similar playing, but the whole point was to kind of show, look what happens. Eventually everyone runs out of money playing this game and everyone, one, one person gets to keep it. That was the original message. It had very much that messaging and the packaging and everything. But then that's not the story we're told when we learn about Monopoly at all. We see the the guy with the, the top hat and we think, oh, that guy's great. As a kid, I was like, oh, that, I want to be that guy. It was very much, he's, he's the good character. And that all came about like, around 1934 and the Great Depression. A gentleman by the name of Charles Darrow basically took the landlord's game idea rewrapped it and sold it to Parker Brothers as this new game. And then suddenly it was a different messaging. Suddenly it was gather all the property and beat all your friends. The rules were very similar though. You went around the board and everything, but ultimately it became getting nice big stacks of cash in front of you. That really, Holman saw that got him thinking even further about creating a game. And ultimately he did create a board game that it's not as similar to Monopoly, I think, as people might think, because it's got different kind of board and the rules are really complex and weird, but that just really helped inspire him to create this game and it became fairly successful for the time, or for any time, really. You write that he ran into some conflicts as a small businessman, that it put him in some compromising situations. Yeah, very much. That's the, and he does a great job, I'll say, I think, personally, like kind of tongue-in-cheek irony as he writes about it. But he ultimately, he went into business with some of his friends they he had he ended up employing some acquaintances of his and that became stressed as the bills started to pile up he he found how hard it was just to get paid what he could sell these he could sell these games to small shops but they weren't always paying him so then he had to start leaning on them he also ran into a bigger issue with brentano's bookstore they had striking their workers went on strike and of course they asked him to pull the game or at least express their support but he decided to not do that because he was 
he by his own account, he was not, everyone assumed like you've got this popular board game, you're a millionaire now, but his whole point he's trying to make is that he was not a millionaire and he was going into debt because he couldn't get anyone to pay him. And the costs were all, it was a little more difficult than he thought to make a profit. And I think there's board games are like publishing, I think, where it's just hard in general to make a profit sometimes. But on top of that, he didn't really know what he was doing, which makes a good read because he, his biography, because it's a classic, we get to learn about it as he learns about it. It's not some expert telling us how it is. It's somebody we're going on the journey with him. At least that's how he writes it. But yeah, but it, it, it has great ironies and great like con- contradictions and hypocrisies even. But he didn't change his political philosophy, I understand. No, he's uh, he's Marxist through and through. No, I did not. He did not. Uh, he, he did not uh, change his, he did not become a capitalist. Although he does joke that he would, I forget the exact wording, but he would, he used to, he said he used to read about downturns in the market and think, ah, yes, the system's falling apart. But now he would, but then he would read about downturns in the market when he was trying to get the game going and, oh, can't the market just keep going for a little while longer so I can get my socialist message out there? Which is a funny, it's a funny hypocrisy, but it's also, I think, in a way, inherent in some of the system because and even Marx would talk about you have to work within the existing system to change it. That often leads people complaining about people being hypocritical in some ways. I, I wasn't aware of Monopoly's history and how its original intention was so distorted. You also shared with me, there was some quite interesting research at Berkeley about a decade back where students were deliberately up were asked to deliberately play a rigged game in Monopoly. Can you share with us a bit more about that? Yeah, basically it was, I forget the exact numbers, but they ultimately had two students in a room being filmed. It was a psychological experiment and they ultimately played the game such that one one player got more money to start. One player, I think, got to roll both dice and when, instead of one die. And then one player got more money each time they passed go. From the very get-go, both of them were very aware of these rules. So they both were aware that this is rigged. One person's clearly going to do better in this scenario. But they, it was funny just looking at gestural movements and just also listening to what the people were saying in the room. Very quickly, they settled into roles where the person who was winning suddenly got cocky and, and they even had more of a primate behavior, like st- sitting up taller. And they were, they were, as they were clicking their piece around the board, they were doing it louder. They even had a bowl of snacks out and the winning person started taking more snacks. There was this weird psychology that took over. And this is 100% with them knowing that the game was rigged. So it just shows like this kind of sense of, you know, entitlement or that, that, that comes to be, you know, this sense of like earnedness. It's not luck. I'm earning this somehow, or I deserve this. That happens over time. And I think it was very interesting that they chose Monopoly for that game. You can, in theory, have done this with, a lot of different games, but I think it puts Monopoly has put itself in this position in our like cultural understanding, but just put it up as the capitalist game, the game of starting out and eventually stratification happening. Uh, the game of private property. Exactly. And I, get a Monopoly, everyone starts off with the same amount of money and the dice are random. We're talking at the end of an election week and Monopoly doesn't seem that obscure a topic to be discussing. So every four years we have this grand national experiment and we look at the results and try and understand and make sense of who Americans are and what they believe. 
Some would look at monopoly and they'd accept that it's unfair and they'd accept the analogy to the system as a whole and they'd say in some ways it is rigged. Lots of people accept that system because if the dice fall correctly, they can end up winning at it. I, I don't know. How do we make sense of monopoly in this present cultural context? Monopoly growing again in popularity. Yeah, I think that to back up a little bit, you know, the election just being glued to Twitter and other media these last couple of days, I think it's funny how quickly this election just confirmed that everyone was correct. Oh, well, see, obviously we we went centrist and it was good. Well, obviously we did. We should have been more progressive. It would have been better. There's a real, a lot of people just take the results and confirm their own worldview. And I think that with Monopoly, I think it, it, I don't see, I think that people, for one, just at a basic level, I think that people think it's fun to win these games. It's fun to go around and, but it's also very frustrating to lose. I think ultimately it just people, they do know the system is rigged or at least unfair. And, and people start, they know that advantages exist, but they still, they're just sold that they can be the guy in the top hat, that they can make it when we, we love hearing stories of people who started the business in their garage. We thought the older, if we were older, we'd be talking about Horatio Alger novels. These little boy makes good, but everyone wants to think that they can be that person. And of course, very few people become that person, especially if they don't start out with generations of them, if they don't start out having their parents be that person. But I think that people still want to win. And I think some of that is, though, a little bit of chicken and egg because these games do set up our expectations board games are they're kind of board games and sports and their initial introduction to rules as children and like how systems work and how we're supposed to play and if the games we are playing are set up so that we're rewarded for winning and making everyone else bankrupt then we're going to absorb that and so if I think that's part of what Ullman was trying to do he was trying to rework the games and rework our knowledge of I just our feelings about how to win and what winning is. Ultimately, the game is, I say all that, the game is complicated though, if you're thinking of an eight-year-old playing it and being told about it. So the messaging, he, has, he I don't know if he would have won a messaging war if it had become even more popular. But ultimately, yeah, I think that the monopoly is going to, it, it's going to keep being popular because people like it and because they grew up playing it. And although they don't play it as much as they used to, I think, because now there are all these more complex board games that younger people are playing. It would seem to me that at least some conservatives would have this sort of Hobbesian analysis whereby they'd say games like Monopoly are good because they introduce children to the competitive nature of the world. But then... I wonder to what degree these attitudes are universal, even if liberals themselves try to imagine that they're not. If you look at, I don't know, someone like Elizabeth Holmes, who pursued a very liberal winner-takes-all agenda as the founder of a company like Theranos, it still seems that these two models of success or these two approaches to the world the, the definitions of winning might be slightly different, but is the, the sort of understanding of the nature of the game fundamentally the same? I think I, I like the use of the referencing Hobbes because I do think that it is adversarial in a lot of the, our interactions in the world, whether we want them to be or not. So even people who try to live as open and non-competitive 
lives as they can. Oftentimes, they still have to compete in the world of idea and the, the battle for ideas. Even these like peaceful d- debates are still seen as like competitions. So we have to, and you see this with people who wish that the Democrats would being the left party in this country, the leftish, that they wishing they would fight harder. So they're fighting harder to make the world less competitive. But so it becomes this inherent. It is still interesting contradictions, and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that because someone lives in contradiction or even lives with hypocrisy that they're necessarily wrong. I think that could be a fallacy. There's just so many things we all have to manage, and we all, to quote the internet, we live in a society, right? So we have to deal with some of the rules that we're given and some of the systems we're given. I just, but I do think that to go back, I do think that the more conservative attitude would be that yes, the world is tough and my child is going to have to fight for everything that they need. So I'm going to teach them how good it feels to win. But that's, that is trying to teach your child what the world is and react to it. But also by teaching your children that you are creating the world as well. So it's a little bit of, you know, back and forth. So we're, I'm not saying that just if we teach the children that the world is, is friendly and everyone should play fair, the world will become fair. No, but if we teach them that the world is unfair and you should crush other people, that is going to create a world in which we try to crush each other. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. No, it's been fun. Thank you very much. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for People by Working People. The history behind Monopoly and its very left-wing creator, Elizabeth Maggie, is even more interesting and complex than what was discussed in the interview. For more details on this history, I have an article about Elizabeth Maggie up on the Labor Express Facebook page at laborexpress.org, so check that out. This past December 5th, the AFL-CIO was able to start collecting Social Security. Well, actually, the Federation, which is not a person, of course, but if it were a person, it could have retired a decade and a half ago at 65. Of course, today, retirement age is 67, thanks to the lack of a truly oppositional and working-class-oriented political party in this country, and a labor movement with the means and will to put up a serious fight over such things. I think the history you'll hear tonight indicates indirectly part of the reason the labor movement is in the state that it is today. I'll put that in context in a minute. Over the past year, we've aired several episodes discussing UE, the United Electrical Radio Machine Workers of America, as well as a brief mention of the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, and what makes them different from other unions. They are a part of this history too, although historian Joe McCartan does not mention them by name in this piece. You could in some ways call this audio excerpt from this most recent episode of Labor History Today the AFL-CIO's side of the story. The AFL-CIO merger, while bringing some degree of labor unity to organized labor in the U.S., Something to be celebrated for sure, but it also came at a cost. One that many labor historians and union activists say, at least in part, explains the decline in union density and consequently labor power in the years and decades that followed this historic event. But I'll provide more commentary and context after this piece. First, let's hear Labor History Today host and producer Chris Garlock interview labor historian Joe McCartan about the AFL-CIO at 65. The eyes surely of workers all over the world, are on this meeting this morning. That's George Meany, the plumber from the Bronx, who on December 5th, 1955, was elected president of the AFL-CIO, which was created on that day 65 years ago, when the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO, 
the country's two leading labor federations joined together. We're devoting our entire show this week to that event, which took place in New York City. You'll hear the voice of Walter Ruther, who headed up the CIO, Meany, the AFL president who became the leader of the new organization, and labor historian Joe McCartan, who provides context and commentary. There's always been factionalism. This moment in 1955 where AFL and CIO came together is a kind of rare moment in the history of the labor movement. It's a great personal privilege and a high honor to have the opportunity of placing in nomination for the presidency of the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations that great American, that great trade unionist, a man I consider a great and wonderful personal friend, George Meany. They didn't like each other. Meany hated Ruther. I'm going to say a lot of wonderful things about this man because I believe them deep down in my heart. There's only one thing that I want to say that I'm unsure of. I have been advised by Pete Schumann, that my candidate is a good plumber, but I have no personal knowledge of that. The split was a long-running and deep split, so it begins almost immediately in November of 1935 when Lewis walks out of the AFL convention and then brings together the people who will form the CIO. By 1938, they're formally expelled from the AFL. And then from 38 until November of 1952, the the split was really deep and rancorous. He is a great trade unionist. He is a great American and a great leader. He is a man out of the ranks of labor. And he knows the problems and the needs of the average American working family. He understands their hopes and their aspirations and their dreams. He loves justice, but he hates injustice and all forms of tyranny. His has been the strong and clear voice speaking out against racial intolerance and discrimination in our national life. What happened in November of 52 is that the head of the AFL and the head of the CIO both died within two weeks of each other. And remind folks of who those were. Right. Um, By that point, William Green uh, had been head of the AFL. He'd succeeded Samuel Gompers. And Philip Murray was the head of the CIO. He succeeded John L. Lewis. In 1940, after Lewis resigned the CIO presidency. So the death, though, of William Green and Philip Murray meant in 1952 that this long-running split, which was also a personality conflict by that point. And Murray had been Lewis's loyal lieutenant when the CIO was founded. And then once he succeeded to the CIO's leadership, he and William Green, they were constantly at odds. Uh, and William Green was very critical of the National Labor Relations Board for being too favorable to the CIO, for example. And in fact, AFL criticism of the Wagner Act and some of the way it was operating in the National Labor Relations Board, that really opened the door for the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. So the split was deep. 
and it had real repercussions. But the death of Murray uh, and Green allowed for a kind of wiping clean of the slate of the people who'd been involved in the split. And at that point, Walter Ruther was elected head of the CIO. He'd already been head of the auto workers since 1946. And George Meany, who'd been secretary treasurer of the AFL, succeeds Green. And so it's after those deaths in November of 52 that the beginning of a rapprochement comes. He has made an outstanding contribution, not only in America, but in the world labor movement. He has served as a vice president of the International Confederations of Free Trade Unions. And in that capacity has made a great contribution in mobilizing the forces of the free world in the struggle against the evil, ugly, and immoral forces of communist tyranny. Now, the rapprochement was only possible, I think, because of the context of the Cold War. Uh-huh. And that played really deeply into it. And you can hear that in Meany's references to Cold War rhetoric in his speech. We know that the kind of instrumentality we're creating here today cannot and will not exist unless it exists in an atmosphere of freedom and under a system of government such as we have. The businessman perhaps can afford to fall for this communist propaganda. And of course the politician from time to time, he sees peace and progress in these negotiations where there is no peace and no progress. Labor has never been neutral in its relations with dictatorship or tyranny. We were never non-Nazi. When Hitler was riding high, we were anti-Nazi. We were not non-fascist. In the days of Mussolini, we were anti-fascist. And we're not non-phalangist in regard to Franco-Spain, we're anti-phalangist. And we can't afford the luxury in these trying days of being non-communist or neutral, we've got and must and shall be anti-communist. In fact, Ruther was close to the socialist faction of the UAW when he's elected to power in 1946. Um, in part, it's he's distanced himself from um, more left-leaning elements of the UAW by then. George Meany, from the beginning, like most everybody in the AFL leadership, was a really staunch anti-communist. And in fact, had been critical of the CIO for harboring communists in the 30s and 40s. But what happened is that the Cold War deepens after the end of World War II, and then you have the passage of Taft-Hartley in 1947, and one of the provisions of the act is you can't be protected by labor law unless your union leader signs an affidavit saying that they are not a communist. They are not a member of the Communist Party. So 
the Taft-Hartley Act in 47 begins to make it hard for communist activists to remain in power within any unions. And then come the really bitter politics of 1948. Harry Truman was running for re-election and a number of CIO unions, most of the ones that were left-led and some of them were close to the Communist Party if, if their leaders, in fact, were not members. Um, a lot of those unions supported Henry Wallace's uh, progressive party. And it was at that moment that within the CIO, a kind of moment of truth emerged because the CIO had made leftists welcome, you might say, from its founding in 35. And communist organizers and activists had played a significant role in a number of unions. But for, yeah. No, I, I just think you need to, communists has such a different association now. At the yeah. time, there was an actual communist party. There was a party, yeah. It was a really different animal at that point, right? That's right. And it was, in fact, the, the existence of a party that was really the question, because the party had a party line. And the party line in 1947 and 48 was to oppose the Truman Doctrine, which was an anti-communist statement that the U.S. would resist the spread of communism. They opposed NATO, the formation of the North American Treaty Organization. They opposed the Marshall Plan. So the Communist Party in the U.S. followed the lead of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union and basically opposed a lot of Truman's policies. And, and it was really around that question that the CIO, again, faced a moment of truth. Um, and when a lot of people stuck with uh, Henry Wallace, what Philip Murray, then head of the CIO, felt was that they were putting the interests of the party ahead of the interests of the labor movement. And in the aftermath of the election, he resolved to do something about it, to basically expel people who remained too close to the Communist Party. Walter Ruther agreed with that approach as head of um, one of the largest unions in the CIO. Ruther and Murray participated in the expulsion of left-led unions by 1950. And the expulsion of those unions really it got rid of one of the main differentiators between the AFL and the CIO because the CIO had tolerated and, as I said, even welcomed the left up until that moment. But once the left was purged, the differences between AFL and CIO were sharply diminished. And they started to cohere around support of U.S. Cold War efforts. And the outbreak of the Korean War and the Summer of 1950, again, it just further weds the labor movement to the foreign policy of the U.S. and to its anti-communist goals. And so you have the former CL and the former AFL coming closer together. It's in that context, and that set the stage for a rapprochement. The deaths of Murray and Green opened the door further. The ascension of Meany and Ruther give you two fresh figures. Neither of them had been involved in the conflict at its origins. And so a serious negotiation can begin. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a short station ID break, but when we return, we'll hear more from Chris Garlick of Labor History Today 
and his interview with historian Joe McCartan. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for People by Working People. Let's return to Chris Garlick of Labor History Today and his interview with labor historian Joe McCartan about the AFL-CIO at 65. I feel that this is the most important trade union development of our time. Whether we deserve the attention or not, I am quite sure that the eyes, surely of workers all over the world, are on this meeting this morning. Millions of workers, millions of ordinary people, behind the iron curtain of despotism and degradation, are looking towards us this morning with eyes of hope. Many millions more who live in the shadow of that curtain of iniquity are, I am sure, praying for the success of this organization which we're bringing into being today. The first thing they decided to do was to negotiate a no-raid agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to your question, a, a lot of the conflict between AFL and CIO had to do with unions from one federation raiding the members of another. And so you had a lot of bitterness about that. And so they began with that really divisive question. And by 1953, they'd concluded an agreement in which each side agreed not to raid the the member unions of the other side. And once they accomplished that, then they could begin to move closer to to unity. They established a joint unity committee to begin to negotiate. And it took more than a year, but they finally consummated the negotiation, which has just been concluded at the time of these speeches. His was among the earliest voices in the ranks of labor, urging unity, making it understood that no one should have a vested interest in division and disunity. He understood from the very beginning that the well-being of the whole labor movement transcends in importance the interest of any section of the labor movement, even though it may be your own section. He believed that within the family of a united labor movement, there could be worked out a proper, harmonious, and constructive relationship between both craft and industrial unions, both being recognized as equal and necessary, both having a great deal more in common than they have in conflict. During the many meetings of the Unity Committee, His was a voice of wise counsel, of patience, and understanding. And therefore, it was logical that when we got to that place in our discussions that we talked about who should lead this new labor movement, that his name was obviously 
universally and with great enthusiasm chosen. He is a man of goodwill, a man of good faith, a man of deep religious convictions. So the formation of the AFL-CIO, I think you could see three things being crucial uh, in terms of goals. One is stop beating each other over the head. Stop raiding each other. At least um, come within a one federation so that conflict within unions could be restrained. A, a second goal is to unite politically. And you hear that a lot in what Meany's talking about mm -hmm. because one big reason for the formation of the AFL-CIO is to provide a unified political voice. So one of the first things that the unified federation does, it, it, it establishes... Uh, a political education operation, Committee on Political Education, or COPE. And so you, you hear that in Meany's speech. We need to pull and harness together politically because whether we come out of trade unions or industrial unions, we need a political agenda. We're going to meet them on the political front, if you please. I'm somewhat amused by this hue and cry about labor political activity, about the labor bosses controlling votes. I'm sure they know that we don't control votes. No one, no one can tell the American worker how he's got to vote, and that includes me, you, and everybody else. I sometimes wonder, these people who are making these statements about a labor political power, I wonder if their consciences are starting to bother them. What is our political <coughs> philosophy? Our political philosophy is to inform our own people on the issues that they have before them and in particular on the issues that affect the welfare of our own people. We want our people to be informed on all the issues facing the electorate, and we want in particular for them to be informed on the issues that affect their lives and their daily work. And they're worried now about a Labour Party. I don't see any sentiment for a Labour Party. And I don't see any sentiment for Labour to take over one of the existing parties. That's the new one now, we're going to take over one of the existing parties. I know this, that we have a right and a duty to meet those who are opposed to us wherever they present the challenge. In the early days, we met the starvation method. We met the company spy, the company injunction, and the company judge. We met the American plan designed to destroy our movement. And now where is the challenge? The challenge is in the legislative halls. And our answer is political education 
and political activity. Because if we're going to carry on this work, they have proved beyond question that they can hamstring us and render us impotent by adverse legislation. And if we're going to carry on this work, as we must meet that challenge in the legislative hall, and that means political education and political action. As I said before, in carrying out our work, we must do so in a way that will commend us to, the, to our neighbors. After all, the American worker is just part, one part, one segment of this great big family that we call the United States of America. A big segment, if you please, but still a segment. We must carry on our work in a way that will bring commendation from those with whom we come in contact. We must try to conduct our affairs in consonance with the high principles upon which our movement is founded and which we are attempting to carry forward. I think the voices of the two men and, and even their styles speak a lot to, to what was happening in this moment. For one thing, I think their, their whole speaking styles and their way of presenting themselves really reflects the culture of the Federation they come from. Meany is the upstart, the, the man of creative ideas, the, the shaker up of the um, status quo in a way. And he was seen as the bright young boy of labor in the 40s. He was uh, a person who had intellectual aspirations. He thought deeply about the purposes of a labor movement. And you hear some of, of the, the worldliness and the wide breadth of his um, way of being and the way he speaks. Ruther, like the CIO, which was staging you know, sit-down strikes and other kinds of militancy, he, he's a rabble-rouser and he knows how to move a crowd. And you can hear that in his approach. Whereas Meany, to boast at times that he had not walked a picket line. And this comes across in his way of being. And he's the leader of the larger. What was their size? Russell? It was about, the AFL at that point was about 9 million and the CIO about 6 million. And so the difference in the size really dictated the nature of the, the negotiation because when they came together, the AFL kept both of the top positions, meaning mm -hmm. as president. And, and they also got the secretary treasurer's position as well. The CIO got an industrial union department, um, <laughs> <laughs> and Meany was uh, given control of that. But that was really, it was, in some ways, after a time, it, it came to feel really constraining for Ruther. He felt somewhat like he'd been given the kids' table. Yeah, yeah, I can and, see. And so eventually, he leads his UAW out of um, the AFL-CIO later, in large part because of Vietnam and other differences that emerged. So the, the nature of the negotiation, the AFL being bigger than the CIO, meant that the AFL was in the driver's seat in negotiating the terms of the settlement. They come away with by far more power. Um, and you can almost hear in these speeches, I think, a reflection of that. George Meany doesn't have to shake the rafters with his speech. He's securely in power. 
and he can speak as long as he wants. <laughs> and he does. And Walter Ruther, by contrast, he knew that he had to work hard to be influential. And he did work hard at it. But, but the two men were never close. And I think that any thought of Ruther that he was somewhat of a grandstander, in part, I think you, you can hear in these speeches that Ruther could move a crowd. And Meany, I think, understood he didn't have those kind of chops. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't how he saw the role of the, the president of the AFL-CIO. Tom Donahue, who worked for Meany as his executive assistant in the, in the 60s, told me that Meany would tell him that the, the purpose of the president of the AFL-CIO is, and how Tom quoted Meany was, to keep the fellas together. And, and what he meant by that was the, the, the heads of the unions, to keep them together, to keep them around the table. I appreciate with un, beyond question, beyond doubt, beyond means to express to you, The confidence that you've shown, that my colleagues of the AFL and CIO have shown, in entrusting to me this very responsible task. I'll give myself to it as best I can. I'm not giving to predictions. I tell you now, I will never surrender principle for expediency. I tell you now that insofar as it's my place to influence decisions, those decisions will be made without regard to where the union formerly was and without regard to how big or how little a union it is. So I guess my last question has to do with, okay, so we can look back now, 65 years later. What are things that sort of stand out with, you know, to you listening to those speeches and thinking about what was going on in the labor movement? That, as you say, that was a historic coming together. Where are we at now? Where are we going from here? Well, it's an interesting question because we used to think of reaching the age of 65 being retirement age. Mm-hmm. So it makes you think about the, the span of a lifetime. And one thing you can say about this federation, the AFL-CIO, existing for 65 years now, um, it's the longest lasting federation in the history of labor federations in the U.S. The AFL itself goes back to the 1880s, but it was less than 65 years after its founding that it split to produce the CIO. And so the coming together then began a, a period of stability in the structure of the labor movement that's unmatched in its history. However, at the same time, you have to say that over the course of the last 65 years, um, the place of labor in society, its strength, um, has eroded. And part of the challenge of labor looking ahead is to think through the kind of federation that can revive and expand labor voice and labor strength in in the 21st century. There have been interesting experiments over the past couple of presidencies of of, um, Sweeney and Trumka of bringing in alternative worker organizations like the taxi 
Workers Alliance, for example. And maybe they are early harbingers of a more dramatic expansion of the kind of organizations that become part of a federation. But there's no question that whatever happens with the AFL-CIO going forward and its structure, the structure of how American worker organizations come together and relate to each other is a central question for how we build a powerful labor movement in the 21st century. And I think we can say that there will need to be some kind of experimentation, I think, as we go forward for thinking about how we preserve this idea of federation uh, and expand it um, and make it a, a seat of driving change again in the country. And, and it could well be that this moment that we're now entering is one that will really offer opportunities for that. It shouldn't be forgotten that the CIO emerged at a time of economic calamity and disaster. But only at that moment, right, when politics had begun to shift in a more progressive direction. And I think you could say that we're, we're in a moment that is the crisis just as deep in a lot of ways as the one we faced in the Great Depression. And now I think with an incoming administration, we face a possibility of politics taking a more progressive turn again. It's exactly at this kind of moment that it's good to think back about the history of these federations, how they came to be, how they adapted, um, because surely we're going to need to be thinking about those big questions in the years ahead. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. I said earlier that I would have a bit more commentary and add a bit more context to the history you just heard from labor historian Joe McCartan after that interview. I like how he ended the interview with an acknowledgement that as important and historic as the merger of AFL-CIO was, it also marked the decline of labor union membership as a percentage of the working population in the U.S., and a decline in density in major parts of the economy and consequently its potential power. In 1954, the year before the merger, unions had organized the highest percentage of the working class at any point in the history of the U.S. labor movement at 34.8%. That percentage would steadily erode over the coming decades, and today it's at 10.3%. It has very slightly increased and decreased in recent years, but that figure has been close to stable for a decade now. That's a huge decline in organized labor's potential power in the economy and politics of this nation. Certainly there were multiple causes to this decline. Deindustrialization, or more accurately, the move of union-organized industries, first to the non-union South and then out of the country entirely, was a huge factor, probably the most important. And an anti-union political climate, especially after the Reagan administration in the 80s, is also a major factor. But I don't think you could ignore the role the reduction in labor militancy after the merger played in the decline as well. The general lack of interest in the Federation organizing the unorganized, the preference of labor peace over confrontation with the employer, and the embrace of more right-leaning politics by at least some parts of the labor movement, This is what Joe McCartan was alluding to when he talked about the UAW's departure from the Federation during the Vietnam War era. The UAW remained one of the most progressive unions in the AFL-CIO, especially their ardent support for the civil rights movement, and increasingly found themselves at odds, especially with the crafts. 
McCartan does not mention the UE and the ILWU in the purges that preceded the 1955 Unity Convention and indeed became a prerequisite of the merger. The expulsion of the left-led unions really took a toll on the character of organized labor in the U.S. I do appreciate McCartan's providing some explanation of the pressures on organized labor, particularly on the CIO, that played a role in carrying out these expulsions. The Taft-Hartley Act, which severely weakened organized labor, forced the CIO to rid themselves of the left-led unions if they wanted to receive the protection of labor law. It's indeed shameful that the AFL supported passage of the act, and the AFL itself made the CIO expelling its left-led unions a condition for the merger. But I think the CIO's unprincipled decision on this matter came at a high cost. There are a couple of other things I think McCartan glosses over. For example, he talks about the 65 years of the AFL-CIO holding together. But he fails to mention the change-to-win split of 2005, which has remained a rift in the labor movement. But McCartan's discussion at the end of the interview of the need for the Federation to change to evolve in order to regain its lost power is important to acknowledge. He points out that an awareness of the need for change of the Federation goes back to the election of John Sweeney and Richard Trumka as presidents of the Federation, even if those changes have been largely incremental in those last 30 years. Lastly, I think of the use of terms like harboring communists in the 30s and 40s really downplays the role of the Communist Party and other leftists from actually building the CIO in its first two decades. I, too, reject the Stalinist politics of the CP in those years, but it's impossible to overestimate the role they played in creating a progressive militant labor federation, the CIO, which largely abandoned those who built the federation with their expulsions and the merger in the late 40s and early 50s. I do think McCartan points to the need today, although rather obliquely, for a left turn in the AFL-CIO if it's to advance, grow, and strengthen in the new century. I will leave my comments from the peanut gallery there. I also need to mention that some small edits were made to that audio excerpt from Labor History Today for the sake of time. To listen to hours and hours more of great Labor History content, you need to check out Labor History Today. There's a link to the podcast on the Labor Express Radio Facebook at laborexpress.org. Thank you to Chris Garlick for allowing me to air those audio excerpts tonight. Well, that's all for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of the IBW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of the IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee Flavor Action in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices, broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker's Song and was written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpinradio.com for more Labor Express. Yeah, this one's for the workers who 